The views and opinions expressed by individuals on the following program do not necessarily reflect those of the network, Guys Guy Radio, and its platforms. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and get you to think and feel and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights and the guests I bring you each and every week to the show. And today's show is brought to you by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space, so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And be sure to add our podcast, Guys Guys Radio, in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. All right, we've got a great show for you today on Guys Guys Radio, a very special guest. He is the preeminent scholar interpreter of Tibetan Buddhism philosophy for the modern world. His name is Robert Thurman, and he's written a book called, another book called Wisdom is Bliss. Four friendly fun facts that can change your life. We talked about the four noble truths, the eightfold path, all of those scientific aspects of Buddhism that can get so cerebral, if you will. And a lot of people don't really understand Buddhism because it's not a religion, first of all. And it's something that needs to be kind of broken down scientifically. And it makes a lot of sense when you do that. And Robert's going to take us through how we actually can view Buddhism, how we can view reality, and why it's such a good thing, and life is certainly worth living and more. All right, quick shout out. I am participating in my friend Cindy Olin's uh, Successful Woman's Guide to Meet and Marry Her Man. It's an online event, September 20th to 30th, Steps for Mastering Your Mindset and Emotions, Creating an Empowered, Fulfilling Love Life. And there's 10 days of uh, speakers. It's all online. You'll see it on social media. I'm waiting to get my exact date. I did the interview for it. And basically, you know, my position was women should not change themselves for, for guys at all. They should be true to who they are as individuals, as people. And if the right guy comes along and vibes with that, there you go. But, uh, it's sometimes it could be fruitless trying to figure out men because so we're so weird and quirky. And women spend a lot of time trying to, because they pay attention, and I say this as a compliment, and uh, try to figure out, like, why did he say that? Why did he do that? And you know what? Guys are just guys a lot of times. And if you are true to yourself and you take care of yourself and you love yourself and you make room in your heart for somebody else, whether you're a man or a woman, you have the best opportunity to meet your partner. And when a couple gets together, whether it's a man and a woman or two guys or two ladies, they create a special universe that no one else can replicate. And we want to honor and cherish those. And we want to honor and respect other people. So go out there, have fun. Dating is supposed to be a fun sport. And uh, don't compromise yourself. 
Be true to yourself, be authentic, love yourself, and put yourself in a position to be open, to know what you want, know who you are, and know what you can offer. So that's my contribution to the Successful Woman's Guide to Meet and Marry Her Man online event with my friend Cindy Olin. Okay, hope you can check that out. Time for our interview with Robert Thurman. He is an amazingly smart individual. He traveled all over Asia. As a young man, he learned Tibetan. He, he got involved with the whole uh, Tibetan Buddhism movement. He's a longtime 50-year friend of His Holiness Dalai Lama. He's a really cool guy. He's a very kind person, and he honored us for coming on Guys Guys Radio. So I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. So let's do it right now. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, Guys Guys Radio, my favorite portion of the show, and particularly today because I've got a very, very special guest. Let me tell you about him. He deserves the full introductions because he's doing so much work for humanity, and I'm so proud to have Robert Thurman (laughs) on the show. So let me tell you a little bit about Robert. He's a preeminent scholar, interpreter of Tibetan Buddhism. Buddhist philosophy for the modern world, professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies at Columbia University in New York, co-founder and president of Tibetan House, U.S. Menla in service of His Holiness Dalai Lama and the people of Tibet. He's a close friend of the Dalai Lama for over 50 years, translator of Buddhist texts, inspiring author of popular Buddhist books, leading (laughs) lecturer on Tibetan Buddhism. He's got a, a book, a recent book is a 300 page graphic novel called Man of Peace, Illustrated Life Story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. And in partnership with Nina Thurman and other contributors, Robert's focused on making uh, Tibetan Buddhism a global and uh, the Tibetan house, a global center for the study and practice of Tibetan Buddhism, healing arts and sciences of body, mind and spirit dedicated as a complement to the life work of his patron, His Holiness Dalai Lama. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Robert Thurman. <laughs> Thank you, guy. Thank you, Robert. It's really nice to be with you. My pleasure. Let's uh, for our audience, as I mentioned, uh, you know, my audience is people who are open to learning new things, and and then they they use what some things that they hear on the show and other things they say. Well, I, at least I learned something here. So I want to put information out there that's digestible for them and fun okay. for them, and and really Great. learn myself also at the same time. So. Let's start with you. You're an interesting fellow. Uh, tell us a little bit about what brought you on a path to Buddhism the way you have done. Well, uh, I had a lucky thing. I lost an eye in uh, 19 when I was 20. So I had a midlife crisis at 20, which mm-hmm. is a good time to have one because you can <laughs> learn new things. And you're not, you're not already a little bit like slowed, slowed down in your head. And so I... Um, I then decided I would go to India and I would really learn from some master how to control emotions, how to how to make the mind work. What I what I said as I departed a yoga of the emotions, I had, you know, Herman Hesse, some Buddhist books, some Sufi books, this kind of thing. And I a little bit hitchhiked, more or less. I started on a motorcycle in Europe, but then I sold it and hitchhiked through the Middle East and Pakistan, Afghanistan, which was Afghanistan was pretty pleasant at that time. And um, and I got to India and then um and then my I took a job with the Tibetans because I the minute I met them, that was that triggered something from my previous life, I'm sure. And uh, I just wanted to study with them. And that was I was home, I felt really for the first time in my life, actually. Because I always felt a little I was the odd one in the family. And um 
So, um, but then odd thing, my dad passed away and uh, I had to go back for a brief funeral visit. And um, by accident, I met an old Mongolian Lama in New Jersey who really started me off. Okay. He was like, and I always say he looked a little bit like the, uh, when I, whenever I see a replay of the Karate Kid, he reminds me of my original first teacher, you know, because he looks sort of like Mr. him. Mr. Miyagi, right? Yeah, that's right. He's sort of like him, but he was Mongolian. His name was Geshe Wangyal. Wonderful person. Amazing, okay. amazing person, really. Okay. And then he, then I was, I was dead set on being a monk once I got into it. Because I, that lay, that in the Buddhist culture that enables you to study lifelong and meditate and not to have to worry about anything else, and he said, "Well, that's good that you want to, but you shouldn't, because then your your destiny is different. You're not going to be able to stay a monk." And I and I didn't believe him, of course. You know, I was 21, 22 by then, and so then finally he took me to Dalai Lama and because uh, he said he told me, "I well, I'll take you. Maybe he'll make you a monk. I'm not going to," he said. And then, but then he told Dalai Lama, don't make him a monk. <laughs> so then Dalai Lama didn't listen to him after a while, but he took a little bit of his time. And we had a lot of fun together. We were too young. We were two students really together. And I was study, he had me studying with his teachers and so on. And, um, and he, because he wanted to talk with me about Western self and modern knowledge and science and all this kind of thing. And uh, I had to make up all words in my new Tibetan. And I was already fluent quite quickly in Tibetan. So that's how I got there. And I had no turning back. And I've never, never, you know, had a moment's thought or a moment's regret. And it's just the most wonderful, opened the most wonderful doors into the marvelous world of Indian science, actually, mental science, at philosophy, which is sort of in the direction of philosophy more than religion. And more, and actually, of empirical science more than religion, and uh, that's what I—I I was not really religious in that sense, maybe spiritual, but I—I I was against most organized religions, and in a way, I never got that much into organized Buddhism. I just liked the Dalai Lama personally, and I loved the Tibetan people, and uh, I loved the teaching as it was in India as well as in Tibet. You know. So you lost an eye. And then you went over to overseas. What was yeah. there an emotion there? You mentioned the, the word emotion. Were you angry at that? Or would you what was the impetus well, of like saying, I'm gonna leave? Well, somebody somebody might think I was just traumatized. Actually, some people did think I was just traumatized, you know, and I needed a shrink or I needed some shock therapy or something. But uh, but I don't think so. I think that it helped jolt me out of sort of, you know, Exeter, Harvard, a certain track, American track, that I actually did with reservation because I always felt it was not the greatest that everybody else was saying it was. I thought there were some things wrong. Like, for example, just impulsively, strangely, at in high school, as a sort of star athlete, leader of my class kind of person, I um, quit before graduating and went to join Fidel Castro's revolution. Wow. In Cuba with a Mexican friend. And then I got kicked out of Exeter. I never did get a high school diploma. I got into Harvard anyway on good grades and on advanced standing, which you, nowadays you never would, but those days you could. And uh, But that that showed that but I, only, I only mentioned the story. I, I didn't know it was not a better matter of communism. I didn't know anything about it. I just, he was a poet and he was seeking justice from a dictator, you know, and I thought that was really great. And uh, But I always, therefore, didn't fit in, you know, Okay. Didn't, I didn't fit in. The new book is called Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. I want to make sure we talk about that. But I want to set the right. table a little bit for our listeners. 
When sure. people, uh, Westerners, you know, they hear Buddhism, they're not sure, oh, there's, you know, if they think it's a religion. So tell us, uh, in your opinion, it is not a religion, and there is a lot of science, as you mentioned, to it. So for yeah. our listeners, what is Buddhism? Right. So uh, I have a slogan where I say Buddhism is realism as a shortest possible way. And by that, I mean that Buddhism tells you your best bet is to try to discover what is real. Because Buddha's great discovery was that the, at the deepest level, reality is benevolent. It is good. It's not a personal benevolent necessarily, although there are a lot of benevolent people and other than human, also superhuman. There are a lot of them, infinite numbers. Uh, but reality itself, in this, and in the sense of benevolent, in the sense that it is a pool or a bed or a field of transparent energy that you can't see, but enfolds and permeates everything. And it wants, it sort of naturally lets itself be drawn on and it's inexhaustible. So rather than the modern materialist idea that the, if you reduce everything down to the absolute level, you, you come up in a blank, dark, nothingness space where the materialist person expects to go when they pass away and they get out of this soft body, you know. And uh, rather than that, it's this pool of infinite energy. And, it, and so it has everything we want. It's beyond what we can expect. In a way, you could say it's an ocean of amazing grace. An ocean is not something dished out by a person. It's just there waiting for anyone who's open enough to receive it. That was Buddha's discovery. And one thing I just want to say about Buddhism that fits while you're, you're table setting, and I'm glad you're doing it that way. And that is people too much think Buddha is just saying, oh, you got to suffer. But what they don't understand is, A, he came to what he considered his good uh, results, his like higher level of existence, by investigating the world and discovering what it is. He thought, at least maybe he was crazy, who knows? I'm still not quite absolutely sure because I'm not a Buddha myself yet, but I'm close enough that I believe him. But he doesn't ask to be believed in. He says, it's really great reality. You really look at yourself, you will be able to understand yourself fully. You look at the world, you will be able to understand the world fully. Those encouraging things he said. But by believing that I'm me, that doesn't help you do it. Then he set out a whole educational thing. So religions are founded the way we define religion today. They are founded by someone who says, follow me and I'll save you. Or God told me he would or she would if you follow me and do what. And here's the holy book that he was talking. He said this. He said that sacred scripture. So Buddha didn't do that. He said belief actually could be a little imprisoning to you. Get stuck in some ideology. And then you don't really observe things anew. You just want to make it fit with your preconceived ideas. And actually, openness is more like it. He said, the realistic belief is actually to be open and accepting because of a sort of underlying trust in reality. Is what is, and he tries to convey that. And, and what in Buddhism, what people have not paid enough attention to is the third noble truth, which is the thing he actually discovered, which is nirvana. And again, he doesn't say believe in nirvana because believing in it won't get you there. He says, realize nirvana. And here's the method, you know? And then if you find the method's not working, bag it, he said, no problem. So in that sense, I say that it's not a religion. And history also proves that because in India and in uh, China and all over where it went, 
It never, the Buddhist institutions never made any effort to destroy the local religion. They modified it. And the one thing they would modify was any kind of sacrificialism because of the wish for nonviolence. They didn't like sacrificing animals and so forth or anything. And so blood sacrifice, they really were against that. And so uh, that's that's one of the main things that they did. But other than so, they tried to get people to reinterpret, you know, and make a little um, a little a little piece of meat out of soy tofu, make the gods into vegetarians. Okay. <laughs> but otherwise, they didn't say the gods don't exist. They didn't. But they said they did say no one god can be blamed for suffering. They said you have to take responsibility for your own suffering because you have the ability to free yourself from it, because the deeper reality than your suffering, the more true truth than your suffering is freedom from suffering, nirvana. So the Buddhism is based on, there's the four noble truths. Let me right. kind of read them off to you as I understand them. Yes. Uh, one, suffering constantly exists. Number two, there's numerous causes of the suffering, ignorance of true reality, the prognosis of that, freedom from the suffering, and then the therapeutic method the Eightfold Path becomes the path of liberation and truth from the suffering to bliss, I guess it would be, yeah, or enlightenment. Yeah, bliss, bliss, okay. bliss, bliss. So then the Eightfold that, Path. That is enlightenment, yeah. Love, bliss, okay. wisdom, and wisdom. Right. So the, then the Eightfold Path has, and you go through this in, in the book, Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. Robert Thurman is my guest here on Guys Guys Radio. The Eightfold Path is really about realistic worldview realistic motivation, life purpose, uh -huh. and to pursue enlightenment. Uh -huh. uh, these are the science. Then there's the ethics of super education, realistic speech, evolutionary action, livelihood, creative effort, and then the mental super education, realistic mindful awareness, and meditative concentration. Is that somewhat go. directional? or That's that is... right on target. That's exactly right. Okay. So what does this mean then, actually? Well, it means that the human life form is highly privileged and very, very extraordinary and very close to a complete understanding of the universe. All humans, not just Buddha and not just Einstein and not just whatever, Saint so-and-so, all humans have this ability. And it, it's a matter of whether they use it that way. You know, humans have been lower animal forms where they are pretty locked into sort of the niche in evolution that they they survive in, and they sort of seek food, right? They eat it, they excrete it, and they live to a certain age, and they die, and they reproduce. And uh, and and they don't have many options, like a crocodile can't sit cross-legged and meditate. Cry, you know, can't learn French, you know. <laughs> you can eat a, eat a Frenchman, but you can't <laughs> learn French. Can't learn French. So what a human is like, actually gentle compared to these more sort of set animals that have one function and they have many functions and they have opposing thumb and we can play around and we have we're we're also we're vulnerable because we need to because we need to associate with each other and then that gives us actually greater we can be more aggressive with guns and you know machinery than other animals but our basic machinery is not aggressive you know we don't have claws we don't spit poison and so on but we've made we enough for that with our incredible intelligence so however what we really have the opportunity to do it isn't that someone ordered us to do it Buddha's not ordering anybody either you know but we have the opportunity if we thought it would be possible to achieve a control 
of our evolutionary existence by understanding how it works exactly. It's like getting the tiller, the steering wheel, and the machinery, the engine, and then we would be able to go wherever we wanted in the universe and do all kinds of good things we would want to do. And um, so actually, Buddha let people, most spiritual traditions and even mystical ones indicate to people who are sensitive and know about the possibility and danger of suffering, afraid of death, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, most of them present sort of the religious life or some sort of different thing as a way of escaping permanently, like get to heaven forever, get out of here. And actually Buddha also allowed people when he first started teaching, there were no Buddhas, you know, they were just people. And he allowed some of them to think that Nirvana was a kind of escape. But then he, he right away said to the more advanced ones, actually, it's an escape in that you approach relationships totally differently. But there's no way for a relational being to enter a non-relational permanent place, because if it was enterable, it would be relative, <laughs> mm -hmm. if you follow me. So therefore, nirvana is just the absolute most loving, most beneficial, most blissful way of being in relationships at where you can really be a, a, a benefactor in relationships because you, you're completely knowledgeable, you're completely caring, you don't really feel the pain in the same way yourself. So you're able to get in there and help people like you're a great doctor. So that's why the Four Noble Truths, or as I have renamed them for your audience and my audience and for myself, the friendly facts instead of noble <laughs> truth, because it sounds more accessible and it is accessible. And so the point is, those are not credos that you have to believe in. They're a, they're a, they're a medical prescription, you know, a, a therapeutic prescription, you know, symptom, diagnosis, prognosis, and therapy, as you put it. So it's apparently, Robert, then we have to first identify the fact that there is suffering, figure out why kind of come to terms with it. And that puts us on a path to be able to transcend suffering. Is that right? Correct? Well, yeah, well, there was one way you could have put your first statement in your summary that was otherwise very accurate. You say there's inevitable, there's continuous suffering as long as you're unenlightened. You know, okay. I always compare Buddha when, because people have such a strong image of Buddha wants us to suffer. Even the Pope wrote that in his book, but that's incorrect. The point is, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living, but Buddha never said the life that will be frustrating is not worth living. It totally is worth living because you can find out what it's all about and you can free of the suffering. But he just said, as long as you don't do that, whatever, you know, you can make a billion dollars, you can be president, you can be king, you can do what you can become a god, but that you'll still suffer because it, it, anything that's made of parts and pieces and from causal process will dissolve at some point. Now, you mentioned the act of disappearing in the book and, a, and that leads yes. to an awakening and a recognition of bliss. I remember yes. reading Eckhart Tolle's book and he mentions that he disappeared into a void and he came out in a in blissful state hearing birds chirping. Could you explain right. the importance of this disappearing and why it's a, an important step? Right. Well, well, one disappearing that we all do every day, thousands of times when we're older, is we pass out and fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and we usually wake up feeling better. And so that's one disappearing that works well. You know, we might have a dream, hopefully a nice one in the middle of it. We might remember it or not. But and when we wake up, we feel re-energized. So that's one of them. The type of disappearing Eckhart meant, I think, although I'm not familiar with that passage, 
But the one I know is where he was almost going to kill himself until he found a new voice in his mind that challenged the voice, the narrative that was telling him he should do himself in. That, that to me, is most, so significant. That's like a, a mindfulness achievement, you know. I love the guy. And, uh, but um, the type of disappearing that I mentioned that is where you will become, first of all, you get encouraged because we're all told that we can't understand the world. When I was little, both in, in some church that I was sent to, my parents were not very religious, but anyway, I went to play basketball and so on, sang in a choir for a while in a Protestant church. And, uh, but I never um, uh, accepted that I couldn't know. And I resisted believing something that made no sense to me. And I was told I had to. And I said, well, who's telling me? What are you talking about? If you don't know yourself, then why do you know for sure that's what I should do? I used to say I was really, I was a problem, problem kid. And uh, and then the scientists also tell you that. They tell you, they say, well, uh, you know, we analyze a lot. We know exactly how this works. But then in the bigger picture, we still don't know. You know, and they, and they keep going like that. And uh, and so Buddha says, you, we really can know by experience, not just by theory. We can really know what reality is and what is how it differs from unreality. We can really do that. So once we get that encouragement, which we have to break out of Eastern or Western culture to be encouraged to that extent, and people not say we're crazy, you know, that of course you can't know everything. No, we can know. And uh, once we do it, we try to find out. In trying to find out, we investigate like a scientist. We analyze things. And when you analyze things, we, we they had happened to them just what happened to the Werner Heisenberg and uh, Niels Bohr and the great quantum physics people, Schrodinger, which is if you analyze things, even a material thing, all the way, it dissolves under analysis. In other words, you keep taking pieces apart and finally it's so micro you can't find anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's the disappearing when you're doing that internally and externally with high concentration, you'll, you'll get into where the last thing that seems to be there is a state of being spaced out, okay. which feels very releasing, actually, and a very re refreshing after the hard work of pinning down what is this, what is this, what is this, what is that type of thing. And that there's a danger there, even, that you then think, oh, this is the absolute. Now I've hit the absolute. It's space. But is that still not absolute? Space is a relational thing, right. you know? And okay. uh, so then what happens is the disappearance disappears just like when you wake up in the morning. But but in that particular disappearance, where you've been really out to find reality, and then you find a space, and you and it's not like you're floating in the space in your body. You leave your body, you go. You are completely out of the space. You are vast, you feel yourself as a vastness, blissful vastness, actually. But then, well, what is that? Wait a minute, but I, I entered it at some point. This will come in your mind. And where is the where's the beginning and the end of this? Where's the right and the left and the up and down? You know, your your mind will probe the space. And when you do that, the space disappears. And when it disappears, it's just part of a web of relationships, relativity all around you, and all the other people are still there. And like now they're reflected though in the mirror surface of your sense of being this vast space, and therefore. You somehow graduate, you, then you can you oscillate back and forth as a meditator or as an investigator, and you eventually try to unify those two things, here. which in a way you can never do. 
but you get to where you hold them at the same time. You, your mind develops a more biggest, bigger openness where you can hold them together at the same time. So you can you can deal with a, it's like a doctor who deals with a patient who's broke their leg and they're in agony and so on. And they're, they're, they're binding it and setting it and sewing up the wound and the whole thing. But the doctor is totally in there and sensitively dealing with every nerve and every blood vessel and every broken, shattered bone. But they themselves are fine. So you get like that. You mentioned the denial of death behavior as as permeating our culture, that yes. a lot of the motivation for how people behave is yes. because they're, I guess, afraid to die and a denial of death. And one of the aspects that you get into is that it's important that we come to terms with the fact that, you know, death isn't really death because we keep going. Could you talk about that a little bit, Robert? So that's a really interesting topic. There was a famous book called The Denial of Death that analyzes all the ways in which it reverberates in all levels of our culture. But basically, it's the big the big fear, you know, the big flat line and so on. And uh, again, their religions have come to play. That's really where they a lot have come to play in the sense that they promise something to people after that. Because whether people have a theory or not that somehow they don't ultimately exist and they're just not going to be there, they've only experienced continuity in our lives. You know, even every time we pass out and go to sleep, we wake up again. Right. <laughs> and we don't get away from the situation for long. For long. But uh, so, uh, you know, go to heaven or God will save you or Jesus will save you or even there's forms of Buddhism where they say Buddha will save you. And um and there are many other, all the other religions. And then the scientists have their own kind of religion, and they claim to be sure that you just won't exist. So in a way, that's promising anesthesia. Since people really are not afraid of being unconscious, they happily fall asleep when they're tired. But they really are, or when their tooth is drilled, they want a shot, you know. But when they, but, um, but when they die, therefore, what they fear that something painful might ensue, right? And the religions also scare people. They say, you're going to hell. This and that horrible thing will happen to you and so on. So the Buddhist thing is rather that actually they do have a very clear definition of death. They also have what I call psychonauts, who are like astronauts of the inner world, who have gone into the death process and they didn't come back and write a best-selling near-death experience book about how they spent a week with Jesus they or Buddha. But they come back and they say, they, they or they don't come back even. They come and say, now in my last life, this is where I died. And now I came here, the, more, the most advanced one. And from that, there is this wonderful Tibetan Book of the Dead, as it's called, which is a wrong title. It's actually called the Book of Natural Liberation by Learning about it in the between state or in the after death state. And uh, it's, it gives you a real good roadmap of how to navigate that situation like a wake, like a living dream, and then how to land in a good place and, uh, and uh, rather than in a bad place. And there is a little danger in that, just like when you're in a dream, if, you, if you're not conscious and not lucid in a dream, you could be in a happy dream and then a, you'd have a, a monster come if you watch too many horror movies or something and you'd have a nightmare, you know, wake up sweating or something. So when you're not in control of your mind, there is a danger you could go in a bad direction. So, But if nobody's good, nobody makes you do that. It's your own understanding of how to navigate your inner emotion, your inner conceptuality, the way the, the, way the mind works. And that we can all achieve not just the shrink and not just the science, so-called official scientists, 
We can all do it, and we all are scientists. You know, I had one friend, a llama. He used to joke that uh, Americans are so careless with their mind, they'll rush off to a weekend workshop with anybody who seems <laughs> kind of cute. But when they buy a vacuum cleaner, they'll spend a week studying the consumer report. And they really <laughs> study it like a scientist. They'll investigate different vacuum cleaners and costs and everything. But we'll go and expose their mind to whatever pretty readily and pretty courageously and recklessly. And he was very amused by it. He thought he liked the quality, the adventurous quality of the American person. He wasn't, it wasn't a put down, but he was just amused about it. So what, what happens when, when, we, when somebody dies and they haven't reached enlightenment, do they pick up where they left off when they get reincarnated? Do they start over? How does that all work according to Buddhism? Well, the description from India and Tibet, the, the psychonaut sciences, scientists, is that what happens is they get enlightened really fast the minute they actually leave their body. That is the minute that they leave their body, which is to say they have that experience of the vastness, that they are that. In other words, and that vastness is an energetic life force. It's not, it's not just a null thing. You know, It's like humming with life, let's say. But if they haven't practiced anything approaching that even, they feel threatened by that, like they're going to be lost in space. So what happens is they pass out, actually. And they do that. They kind of pass out from, from the shock of it. Probably, they say, for three, around three or four days, most people. And, um, and then they sort of, as if waking up, it's like waking up in a dream. And then they, they actually don't know they died. And they wonder where, whether they died or not. In a way, they feel a little different. Sort of, they're a little more floaty, and so they kind of wonder. Uh, and and they they tend to be around in the same area where they were when they lived for a little while. And they will see people that they know. You, did you ever see the movie Ghosts? Sure. By Bruce Rubin's movie, he wrote that movie, studying that book, that Book of the Dead, that the Tibetans wrote, an English translation of it, and. Uh, and so he hit, you know, afterwards the guy dies, right? And then he goes up to different people, goes to the wife to warn her, but she can't see him or hear him, you know, like, like a wrong Zoom connection. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, she, uh, so anyway, yeah. So, so, and then they start feeling, having like dreams and it, the, the more uncontrolled they were in their life, sort of just, you know, following whatever narrative, they just watch a TV show, then they're carrying on with that. You know, if people live it without, without the idea that you can actually choose the channels in your mind that you want to reinforce, that you want to watch, you don't want to listen to the bad channel. Like Eckhart Tolle, who was having a bad channel in his mind, telling him to kill himself. And then he heard a better channel saying, why are you believing that? Who, who, why, is, why are you telling yourself that? Or on what basis are you doing that? There's other ways of seeing it, you know? What's the bigger picture? And then he didn't do it. Thank heavens, because we wouldn't have his wonderful teaching okay. of the power of now if, we did, if he had. So, so the point is, you go through a process like that, and then, they, then there are lots of um, interveners. You could say angels. You could say shamans would say some sort of a special totem animal. Uh, Buddhists would say different Buddhas and Bodhisattvas sort of like are like kind of angels and deities a little bit. And they can interact on those subtle planes. They are like subtle plane voyagers. And they are there to help people. And so they'll try to guide you in a good direction. 
And then others will maybe try to lure you and seduce you and go in a bad direction, et cetera. And uh, it's, it's a process. They sort of have a nominal thing, 49 days. And every seven, you have, you go through a sleep and renewal, sort of or a, a redeath and renewal, even in the dream state. They say every seven days. And then the maximum it can go before you get another embodiment is 49 days, usually, they say. And... Um, and they, do, they also, it presents a little wrong because if you, if you, some of the people take you up the light tunnel, you know, the tunnel of light, mm-hmm. and they do present that for the popular masses as if that tunnel of light will lead to some permanent escape. They don't mention that, well, once you're a Buddha, even, you're still there, and then you want to help others, and you, and you do it effortlessly and blissfully. But you, but you in other words, you, you haven't completely escaped because Buddha, Buddha could escape. If they they or they could stay in a disembodied way, that is to say, which is not 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 absolute, but a relative, perfect way. But they like to help other people. That's otherwise it's boring, you know. So they they like to do that. Guys, guys, radio. My special guest Robert Thurman. We're talking about all things Buddhism and wisdom is bliss. His new book, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. I, I want to get to we, we we're getting tight on time, but I want to get to a couple of things that I think are important to Thank all of you. us out there, Thank and that you. is. You know, the world seems really at a tipping point right now. Right. We've got COVID, we've got climate change, we've got war, as we always have, and people are really on edge. Yet, every spiritual teacher and metaphysical teacher and messenger that I've interviewed, when I ask them, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of humanity? And they all say optimistic. And everybody, though, is waiting for what's going to happen. When's the next shoot going to drop? And people say, oh, well, you know, you've got the new moon coming and the, the lion's gate opened and all this stuff. And everybody's like floods in New York City and all kinds of stuff. People are really <laughs> freaking out. And there's so much separation right now. What right. is your take and what is the His Holiness Dalai Lama's take on what's going on? And should we be optimistic or should we be afraid? Uh, we should be both. We should be optimistically afraid. <laughs> okay. Aware. <laughs> that, means, that means that uh, that's really the deepest message of my Wisdom is Bliss book is to really focus on the third friendly fact of nirvana as the underlying and this permeating reality of everything. If we could only know, and actually Eckhart does a similar thing. He says about now, if you go in the moment, then you you drop out of worrying about the negative causalities and the things and you can get a kind of release in the moment. And I, I think that's very effective and I like it. And I would just say that it opens the door to how, what is the moment, which then becomes something the Buddhists unpack even more. And, and Eckhart knows about that and he likes it. And uh, But it's a good start to at least get out of constant worrying, anxiety, fear. It's crippling you. And find find peace and happiness by observing the richness around you, which you will do when you get out of constantly, you know, driving yourself through based on all kinds of culturally indoctrinated ideas that you have to do this and you have to get that and you have to do the other. So, 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 find the bliss in the moment is very doable, and we should. And our main duty to deal with the difficulties which are teaching us actually mother earth is giving us a teaching she is letting it's like it's like you're having a happy time sucking on your mother's breasts and then you haven't you're almost satisfied but just sort of naughtily or unconsciously you nip her nipple and then if she's a good mother 
she gives you a little flick with her finger on the cheek, just a little one, mm -hmm. just so you can feel that there's something not that pleasant, not hard, not to hurt you, but just you feel a little jab, and then you then it's gradually you'll realize when your teeth close, your your gums or teeth close on her breast nipple, it hurts. And that's a very important mother teaching to be done just the right way, gently, but a little firmly. So is the earth and, doing that to us right now? Yes, is the earth yes it is. She's okay. reacting to our mistreatment based on our sense of, original sense of separation, based on our, our cultures terrorizing us. You know, the high priests, Eastern as well as Western, the high priests in league with the king or president or minister or whoever is the boss, the dictator, the high priest and the dictator, they have a stake in having everybody frightened that they are in a bad situation and only the high priest and the king can save them, help them, liberate them, whatever it is, defend them, whatever it is. And so they want people to be, be afraid and they don't want them to think they can manage on their own. And even if they die, they'll be fine if they're open, you know, and because death is only a renewal. It's like sleep and waking. And um, they don't want them to know that because, for example, then they won't be, they won't have the, the free, free floating anxiety and fear that comes from thinking that death is bad and not really investigating it, not being alert to it and realizing that it might, might or might not be, but maybe it can be investigated. And uh, like, for example, if you're being tortured somewhere, death is good. It's like going into shock when you're in a terrible, painful accident, you know, and that's a natural good thing about our, our embodiment has amazing ways of adapting to even the worst kind of situation. And uh, death is just a change that we do. Uh, I, I love the Dalai Lama. He was in a, in a VIP lounge in Warsaw. There was a bunch of little girls and boys doing their dance, you know, with the little frocks and the flowers embroidered on little white blouses and the boys had their little uniforms and they were singing some Polish song and some farewell thing as he was probably leaving a conference or something. I don't know, I just saw the video. And one of the little girls said, oh gee, your holiness, uh, or Mr. Dalai Lama, I forget. Uh, it must be really hard to reincarnate. Isn't that really trouble? Isn't that give you a hard time doing this reincarnating stuff? Like, what, what, how do you do that? And she's like acting like this. It might be 11 something or nine could be. And he goes, oh, no, it's easy. No, no, no problem. He says, not at all. No problem. Just like, for example, if, if your dress gets dirty and worn out or torn, you go with your mom to the shop and you get a new dress and you're wearing a nice new dress. It's just like that. It's just as easy as that. No problem. He says, and she says, oh, that's really great. And then all the kids are looking happy. <laughs> I thought it was so cool it. because you know you're supposed to hide death from kids and uh, uh, and he just he made it he made them he de anxietized them in subli almost subliminally in a simplistic way uh, appropriate to their age and uh, and they cheered them up that was the main point for the moment you know fantastic I got time for one or two more questions be but I have so many questions so I know well, we can do another one I'd love to I would I would love to I would love anyone to. who gives good questions I I embrace it well thank you that's what we do here on guys guys radio so uh, <laughs> so for the I know you meditate how often do you meditate and how for how long and um could you give a couple of tips for everybody out there as to how they can start on a more positive path and not be kind of ridden by fear, kept down by fear? So two questions. One, your meditation. And two, what can people do to really get the most out of life? Right. 
So the, that first one for myself, I don't meditate that much because I'm very busy working. I have meditated quite a bit over the years, although I'm I'm not uh, in favor of uh, people saying that meditation is the panacea for everything. In fact, if you don't learn something new, or in a way unlearn many of the things that have you terrorized and have you freaked out and have you subordinated to some sort of thing that you think you have to follow and you're some boss type of thing, then if you if you break free, you have to break free of that. And also you have to break free of an inner boss that you think is your absolute you, identity to you, telling you you have to do this and that. And that takes unlearning, which is a critical learning process. And that's that's the where you first you get your first level of wisdom. Second level of wisdom is reason it out, talk it through, debate, doubt, investigate, talk with your friends, listen to guys, guy radio, and, and learn some new thing. And then that's like Descartes, that's discursive meditating and mindfulness meditating. Observe what happens in yourself and what happens around you more carefully than just slap your idea on it and then just go on to the next one. And then finally, you can get to where you develop concentration and you really change your way of perceiving. And uh, those are three stages. And I have done it, but I don't do a tremendous amount. But so that's the answer to the first question. So learning is the first important meditation. And that connects to then what I, how I would answer the second one. What people can do is realize this, that their own minds are in control of their life. And they are always meditating. So it isn't a matter, should I meditate or not? If you watch Guys Guys Radio and you listen to it, you meditate. And probably, though, if you have never actually tried to med- learn more officially how to, if you don't have a clicker, in your head, you will probably be distracted because something will make you think of something else and you go off on a tangent in your mind and you will hear what I said or what, what Robert said, that what the other Robert, Robert Manny said, but you maybe won't follow you. Oh, what did he say? You know, you when you come back to it. So our minds are distractible like that. Yes. We have all these inner voices. So the point is you're meditating on your own narrative about what you're doing. So the first thing you could do is try to be more aware of that. And then second is be careful what you put in your mind. Like don't watch fake news and people who lie to you for profit or try to make you angry or who try to pretend that, you know, something that is horrible is good, et cetera. Don't listen to that. You know, don't, don't expose them. You can listen to maybe see what kind of stupid thing they're dishing out, but don't, don't constantly let it, uh, let it, let it you. Right. The reason that, the, the you know, it's so funny to me that the media people are always saying, oh, we don't understand why people are so polarized. And it's that. Meanwhile, there are different kinds of media that just exactly. completely propagandize people. Exactly. Ever since they canceled the Reagan people, canceled the fairness doctrine, that you're not supposed to express opinion without having a countervailing view right in the same program right. on the public airwaves to prevent precisely propaganda. Because... The point is, when you watch TV, you're meditating. And commercial advertising people know that. They give you a meditation about how your car sucks and you should buy a Chevrolet, you know, or a new one. Do you know what I mean? Throw out your old one and trade it in a new one. And, and they want you meditating on the imperfection so you'll buy their thing. And uh, they much, and then they want you to meditate on fear and so on. And they show, about some, they show you some bad guys doing something. They never show you the good guy who did something, or very rarely. And... Uh, precisely because then people want to sell you things for your fear, you know, some anxiety pills and so on. And, uh, and it's really a bother, a bother. 
So the point is, we should be very aware of that the, the original media is our own inner narrative in our own mind. And we are responsible for that. And we can find a great deal more richness in that than what we habitually think when we become more observant of how we think and how we do it. And that's called mindfulness. And you can do that while you're going walking around, while you're working, whistling, you know, not just let the radio play and let that be your, med your meditation. Although music is okay, because at least they can't brainwash you with music. But, but when, when these people are hammering some false opinion at you, then you're being brainwashed and you should try not to do that. So then finally, when you've learned good things and you have really maybe opened your imagination to the possibility of really being a really free person, not some false idea of freedom as being the ability to harm anybody else that you want, but really what freedom really means and then how to be responsible within it. And you've decided that you can increase your freedom and you can increase your joy and you can diminish your suffering and agony and anxiety and, and, and confusion. And then you can go to work on that and then you can really then meditation becomes a really helpful educational tool, which is what it is. It's not a place you go as a panacea, but it's a tool to deepen your observation of nature, your inner nature and the outer nature. And uh, it, you'll never regret it when you really get used to it, you know, and you, you use your mind and then you'll be surprised. You know, IQ, don't think that if you ever took a test and someone said you have IQ of blah, blah, don't think that's a fake fact. That's just a cross section, temporary, some skills that you have by something you'd learn because you can have, you can increase your IQ indefinitely. There's no limit to how smart you can make yourself. If you study and learn and develop, you'll become much smarter. And also if you just duh, sit around staring at any old input, you can also become dumber. Okay. <laughs> dumb so, and so dumber. Careful careful what we consume and careful how we manage our thoughts and we create our life with each and every second. I, that's I right. That's, okay. Yes. And, and, okay. and the main thing, try, choose happiness. Yes. Choose love, not fear. Yeah. Love, not fear. Have, and so, but love doesn't mean always nice. If someone's nasty, you might leave. Okay. Okay. You might say that's nasty. Okay. And that's loving to a nasty person. If you dare, you know, you should don't do it. If they're going to get like pummeled. Okay. Like, but, uh, you know, love means you really care for the welfare of the other person. So sometimes, you know, like a mother has to correct the child in some way, or the child will stick his finger in the electric socket, you know. So so that's the thing. Guys, guys, radio, Robert Thurman, my special guest. The book is Wisdom is Bliss. Thank you so much. Where can people find out more about you and support your work? Uh, BobThurman.com, uh, thus.org, smithhouseus.org. Uh, and basically, it all can start from BobThurman.com. That will, that will work fine. All right. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great job. I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay. A fantastic conversation with one of the world's preeminent scholars on Tibetan Buddhism, Robert Thurman. I really enjoyed that conversation. And Robert, as I mentioned earlier, he's just a very kind, very thoughtful, very smart man. And I'm so uh, honored that he came and visited us on Guys Guys Radio, and I'm sure we'll have him back. So what did we learn today? Well, we learned a lot about Buddhism. I think uh, if I could just pull a couple of uh, points out, it would be Buddhism is not a religion. It's really, it's about realism 
and uh, mindfulness that we talk about so much when we talk about Buddhism is really about becoming self-aware in a different way than we might have thought it to be. And I think there's a lot more to it, but Buddhism also is very cerebral and uh, it's worth studying. It's worth getting into. It's worth doing some digging on because you will start to look at the world in a, in a different way and appreciate yourself and come to terms with how there's a lot of suffering in the world and how we have to go through a lot, but it all turns out the right way. So Guys Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific time, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 10.50 a.m. on KCAA Radio here in Southern California. The show rebroadcasts every Sunday at 6 p.m. The podcast and my worldwide YouTube Guys Guys TV posts every Thursday. You can catch us on any pod class, podcast platform that you use. We're all over the place. And also, again, you can watch just the interview portion of the show on our YouTube channel. Just use my name, Robert Manny, and it's called Guys Guys TV. You can catch me on my website, robertmannymanni.com. I've got over 300 blog posts about everything about life, love, the pursuit of happiness. It's all free content. I just wrote... Um, a long one about why I, why and when I quit drinking, which was a year ago, and uh, I hope you'll enjoy that. And also, you can download three free chapters to my novel, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love, about two dudes in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money in New York City, where they play for keeps. It's been called The Male Successor to Sex in the City. It's a fast, frothy rom-com about two men and their relationships with each other and relationships with women and their careers and becoming, evolving better men. So that's what we do here on Guys Guys Radio. We, we try to look at things from a guy's guy's lens, through a guy's guy's lens, and we're doing everything we can to bring you new information, new guests with different things to think of and to consider, and hopefully to help make your life better. So I'm going to be back here next week on Guys Guys Radio. We've got a whole bunch of guests coming up. We've got 19 more shows till we hit the Magic 500. And I thank all my guests. They've been so terrific. I've learned so much, and I hope you have also. I thank my crack producer, Christine. She's amazing. And also, more than anybody else, I thank you, my audience, as we grow and grow and grow. So Guys Guys Radio, I'll see you next week. Until then, like I always like to say, Guys Guys finish first.